I get the pleasure to uh, introduce the book of Philippians today. And Philippians, um, we need to start off with some background. Because when we read through the New Testament, um, we see a couple main characters and we see, you know, books. And it's, but you know, we don't really have a good depiction of how it's all laid out, of the timeline of when things happen. We can read through the New Testament, but it's kind of a little jumbled in places. So we're going to start off by going back. And before we even do that, I need to start off with a story about me. Um, when I first got married, and actually from the time I was little, I have an innate sense of telling like which direction I'm going. If I'm driving somewhere, I don't hardly ever get lost. If it's the first time I've been there, maybe. But usually, I'm just, I just know which way is north. I'm like, okay, we got to go down this road, take a right. It's over there, so take a right, the left, go a little north, and we'll get there, you know. And like in any building I go in, somebody could blindfold me, spin me around three times, and while I'm still blindfolded, I go, oh, that way's north. I just, I don't know. God made me that way. And early in my marriage, we'd taken a vacation, my wife and I, is before we had our boatload of kids. And we went to Vancouver, B.C., and uh, while we were there, we were uh, going out early in the morning. We were going to go out to a park that was nearby along the river. And when we left, it was really foggy. And you know, when it's foggy, you get disoriented. And just to give you a little background on my wife, my wife, I love her, but you know, when we were dating, she got lost on the South Hill, which is where she lived for numerous years. And I was like, how did you get lost? But she just isn't as good with directions. And so we're driving in the fog trying to get to this park, and it was before, you know, cell phones with GPS. You, you may have had a Garmin or a TomTom Go or something like that that helped you get to where you were going, but we didn't have one of those. We were just traveling by knowing the address and a map, the old-fashioned way. And we ended up, we're going along, and my wife says, we're going west. And I said, no, we're going east. Honey, the, the, the river is on our left here, it's to the north. And she goes, yeah, the river's on our, to the north, but I'm pretty sure it's to the right, and we couldn't see anything with the fog. Well, we went a little ways farther, and all of a sudden the river appeared, to a right. And I was humbled. I was put in my place, you know, for once. I was so arrogant about it before that. I was like, I know the right way. I know that's the side. I know it's over. I was wrong. Now, there's been a lot of other years of my life that I've been wrong, and I will freely admit that. But when it comes to directions, I was confident and you know, that's the type of person Paul was. And maybe you've held an opinion in your life. Maybe you've held one of those things where you're like, I know I'm right. I know this is the truth. Maybe it's an opinion. Maybe it's something you've read. And then later on, you find out I was wrong. Well, as we look at Paul, Paul has an experience in his life that does just that to him. You see, as Donnie shared with us last week, um, 
Saul at the time was his name, he was traveling around arresting Christians. He was actually there helping hold coats while one Christian was killed. He was taking letters to Damascus to have Christians arrested. And as they're traveling, after Jesus has died on the cross, rose from the dead, after when Saul is traveling with his guards up to Damascus with these letters, he is blinded by a light. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Donnie shared with us last week and talked about how we are one body. Saul was arresting Christians. But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asked, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. Now go to Damascus and, I'll, and stay there and I will send somebody to you. And so Saul obeys. He goes, his guards lead him there. He's blind at this point. He goes to Damascus. He waits, doesn't eat anything for three days. And while he's there, um, three days had gone by and there was a guy named Ananias. And Ananias apparently in the New Testament times was a name like John for us today. You know, there's, oh, I know several Johns, but Ananias back then was a common name apparently because we hear several of them in the Bible. And Ananias was, appeared to, God appeared to him and said, Ananias, I want you to go down to this house and I want you to see this guy named Saul. Now, Saul was a common name amongst the Christians. They knew who he was. They knew the guy that was coming around arresting Christians. They knew the guy that was having Christians thrown in jail or even killed. And Saul's, Ananias is like, are you sure? And the Lord says to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I shall show him what he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias goes. He obeys. He goes and he prays for Saul. The scales fall from his eyes and he's able to see again. And can you imagine that moment for Saul? He's had three days to think about how wrong he was. He's had three days to think about what he's done to Christians that believed in Jesus and now he has to change his thinking in his mind to go, I was wrong. Everything that I thought I was doing right, all my training from childhood in the biblical text of learning as a Pharisee, I'm wrong. So, Paul at this time um, does what I think a lot of us would do and kind of retreats. Now, when we're reading through the book of Acts, um, this conversion happens in chapter 9. And if you are reading Acts just a few chapters later, chapter 13, it talks about his first missionary journey. But that's not exactly the timeline that we need to remember. Because I was looking online and I found this uh, illustration that we're going to put up here. And as you see this illustration, um, you can see at the far left-hand side we have the cross 
we have the start of the yellow, there's a, a small D. That is Damascus. That's the, when Saul was blinded and, and converted. And we have, it shows up at the top, it says Galatians 2. And there's the yellow section and gray section that the line spans. And that's about 10 years. So Saul, for 10 years, disappears basically out of text. We don't know a lot about what he did. We know he went to Arabia. We know he went to Tarsus, back to where he was born. But we don't know much beyond that. Well, after about 10 or so years have gone by, um, Paul comes back to Jerusalem. He tries to meet with the disciples, and they're hesitant still. He's been gone out of the picture for 10 years, but they're thinking, you know, we're going to keep our distance. But Paul ends up going on a missionary journey. He goes to what is modern-day Turkey. That's kind of in the area of where Tarsus is. But he goes up to a number of cities, and as he goes, he runs into some opposition, we would say. One city he's thrown out of. One city they haul him outside the city and stone him until they think he's dead. But still, through that time, Paul invests in people. He tells people about Jesus, and people come to know the Lord. And as that happens, a church starts, the church of Galatia. And as the church of Galatia starts, um, you know, he spends about, we, you know, think about missionary trips now. A short-term one is two weeks or so, and a long-term mission is like a year Paul, back then, they didn't have the modes of transportation we have. So a mission trip back then, in Paul's case, was around three years for the first missionary journey. That happens in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. We read through it in a day. Well, a couple years after he finishes first missionary journey, he goes on a second missionary trip. Again, lasting about three years. He starts off heading back for Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and goes up and as he goes, the Holy Spirit keeps him from preaching. Every town he comes to, he's kind of move along, keep going. And as Saul gets to, Paul I should say at this point because his name was changed, as he continues on, at one point, you know, I, if it was me, I'd be like, where am I supposed to go? You keep telling me, move along. Keep telling me to go to the next town. Don't preach here. And eventually, the Lord speaks to him in a vision. And a Macedonian man appears to him and says, come, help us. Now, Macedonia is across the Aegean Sea. It's to the north where Greece is now. Um, that would be uh, modern-day Greece. And so Paul, you know... Gets in a boat of some kind, gets across the Aegean Sea, and goes to one of the leading towns, which is Philippi. And while he's in Philippi, um, he's there for a couple days. We're not really sure how long. But on the Sabbath, he goes down to a riverbank and where he knows some people would be praying. And he goes down to talk about Jesus. And he meets a woman named Lydia. And Lydia was a person that believed in God. And it says that God opened her heart to hear Paul's message. And when he did, she did, she was baptized. And she pleaded with Paul, says, come, 
you and Silas, who was with him on this missionary trip, he says, Paul and Silas, come and stay at my house. And so they did. They, they went and stayed at her house. And I'm thinking that this was kind of like a base of operations, uh, an early home church, per se. And they would go out from there, and they would go out and preach the word in the city of Philippi. And a couple days had gone by. It doesn't say how long, but we know that a slave girl who was a fortune teller, she was filled with an evil spirit and said that she would tell people's fortune for money. And she was walking around behind Paul, and you may have, you know, had some experience in your life with somebody that follows you around that's maybe annoying and that, you know, I don't know if it's a younger sibling or something, but they follow you around and, you know, kind of annoy you. And it says that Paul turns around annoyed with her and casts the demon out. And the spirit leaves her. Now, this you would think is a good thing. However, she was a slave. She was owned by somebody and they were making a lot of money off her. So they grabbed Paul and Silas, took them to the leaders. They stripped Paul and Silas's clothes off and beat them with rods. Now, that's pretty bad. Then they threw them into jail. They put them in prison, had them their legs in stocks. And at this point, I know what would be going through my mind, and it probably wouldn't be, you know, thank you for sending me on this mission trip, Lord. But Paul and Silas, it says, are in prison about midnight. They're praying. that I would have been doing that. They were praying and singing songs to the Lord. And I don't know if the Lord was sitting there tapping his foot to the sound of their music or what it was. But it said there was a violent earthquake. The prison doors opened. The shackles that were on their feet or the, the stocks that were on their feet were loose and they were free. But what it does say is that they didn't go anywhere. The jailer at the time is panicked because in those days, if a prisoner gets out, the jailer is held responsible. The jailer was going to be punished for everybody that gets free. And he's a little scared of this. And when I say a little, I mean a lot. He grabs his sword, and he's just about to fall on it. He's about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas say, wait, wait. We're all still here. And the jailer, shocked by this, instantly says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus. And it says that the jailer did. He took Paul and Silas home, which apparently was an okay thing to do for a jailer, but he takes him home to his house. He took care of their wounds. And then it says that him and his household were baptized. So we now have Lydia, who we know was converted, who believed in Jesus. And now we also know of the jailer and his family. And I can't help but feel that these are the founding members of the church of Philippi. The people that started the church with Paul. Well, that brings us to Acts 15. We've gone through three chapters in Acts in about 20 years. Um, at this point, Paul then goes back. He leaves town. He, goes in, he stays in the area and starts some other churches. However, we don't hear of any communication really with the church in Philippi 
until about 10 years later. Now, by this point, he's gone on a third missionary trip and been arrested and thrown in jail. He's been taken before the king at the time. He's been taken, moved up the chain as he keeps saying, I'm appeal to Rome, I appeal to Caesar. And they move him up and he's now in Rome in the prison there, waiting trial. And at this point, um, Paul was chained to a Praetorian, Praetorian guard in prison. Now, this is an elite guard of Caesar. And, you know, it's kind of like if for our modern day thinking, it would be like chained to the S, an SS officer for Hitler. This is the most elite special forces operation. Maybe in the you know, United States, we'd say chained to a, a Navy SEAL or something like that. I don't know. But that's where Paul's at. He's back in prison back in chains, and probably remembering of his time in Philippi. And that's when he writes the letter to the Philippians. And so that's where we pick up with Philippians today. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints of Jesus Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, before we go on any farther, we need to, you know, you're maybe wondering, who are they all talking to here? And we're going to go through, there's three groups of people. First of all, there's the deacons. Deacons are people that do the practical work. They would be the people that, you know, fed the hungry and took care of the widows and things like that in the early church. And to this day, that's kind of the deacons are the more of the practical hands of the church. Overseers would be kind of the leadership of the church, the, you know, the pastor and the elders and things like that. And then it also says, the very first thing there in verse 1 says, and to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, we, when we say the word saints, in our minds, you probably have a picture of somebody. Probably have a picture of maybe somebody like Mother Teresa. Or, you know, Paul from the Bible. But that's not exactly what we're saying. In fact, in the New Testament, the word saints is more a description of just people that believe in Jesus. The word saints means separated or holy one. And it is not who you are, because sometimes I don't feel like a saint. Most of the times, I don't feel like a saint. And you probably don't either. We don't feel like a holy one or separated. But it's not who we are. It's where we are. And Paul says it right here in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And as believers, we are all in Christ Jesus. We are all separated. We are all holy ones in Christ Jesus. We are all separated because of him and what he did for us on the cross. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in every remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I think back on this and I think of Paul being in prison in Philippi, Paul being in prison in Rome. I don't know if he has nostalgic feelings about, you know, when he was released and cared for and he got to see the salvation and the start of the church in Philippi. But Paul is joyous. Throughout the book of Philippians, he's filled with joy about the church. Verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, this is something that we see that Paul, you know, he declares, he says, we have a partnership. We have a partnership both in my imprisonment, they remember the, you know, him being in prison there, but he says, and also in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You know, as Christians, we need to remember that that is one of our main things that we should be doing. Showing up at church on a Sunday is good, but God is calling us to be witnesses. God's calling us to be witnesses, and part of that witness is to be able to defend and confirm the gospel, that Jesus is God's Son, that He lived a perfect life, that He died on the cross for our sins, and He rose again on the third day. Are you ready to defend the gospel? Verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you and all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and is pure and blameless for the day of Christ day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, as we look at these verses in 1 through 11, um, there's three points that stand out to me, and I'm going to run through those really quickly. Um, my three takeaways is one is treat each other as saints. Because as believers, we are all separated. We are all in Christ Jesus. And even if people aren't acting like saints, <laughs> I don't act like a saint always. But I need to remember to treat others that way. You know, one thing that I talk about with my kids is I say, you know, when they do something that's, you know, 
they wouldn't do out in public, but they do in the house. Probably all know examples of that, if people you know. And I always say to my kids, would you do that in front of Grammy or Grandma? Would you do that in front of Pastor Donnie? And they always kind of, you know. And I say, why then do you think it's okay to do it in other places? Why is it okay here? So, you know, we, we kind of establish stuff and say, treat each other as saints, as set apart. Well, the second takeaway is to pray for people. One of the best ways, in my opinion, to change the way you feel about somebody is to pray for them. If they are, you know, somebody that's annoyed you or done something to you, pray for them. Find ways to pray for them. Not, oh, I pray, Lord, that you'd get them. (laughs) But a true prayer that seeks the Lord for them. Pray for them. Maybe there's not people that have offended you lately and you're like, eh, There's lots of people to pray for. Pray for people by name, not generic prayers of like, I pray for all the people, but people that come to mind. You know, if you are online, look at the people that are online and say, you know what, I'm going to pray for each one of these people this week. Think of people in the church that you may know or that maybe you're acquaintances with and pray for them. Pray for them by name. Pray for people. Pray for people that are sick, that are struggling this week. Find ways to pray for people. The third thing is, at the very end there, it says, let your love abound. It ends with the, with the fruitfulness of righteousness. And, you know, you hear that and think, well, what does Paul mean by that? And I think Paul defines it for us in the book of Galatians when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know what I don't hear in that list? Anger. Bitterness. Resentment. Not even disappointment. Not frustration. Not even arrogance. See, Paul writes this letter and it's joy. It's spreading joy to the people. He's like, I'm in prison. Praise the Lord. I'm going to speak to Caesar. I'm going to preach the gospel to Caesar, just like Ananias back in, in, the, in Acts 9 was told that I'm going to go and speak before kings. I'm doing it. And I think we need to have more of that in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We need the Holy Spirit and His love to abound in us. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank You for this 
letter to the Philippians. We thank you for, Lord, giving us such a clear picture of your love. Thank you for the scriptures that we can read about and learn about how to defend and proclaim your name, Jesus. Help us to be brave and bold like Paul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.